Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Money Mitch Effect. I'm your host, Mitch Michaels, and thank you for joining me on this sports podcast where we talk about anything and everything in the wide world of sports. Got a couple big guests on today's show. First up, Brandon Marcus, who does a lot of different things in the sports industry, a former co-worker of mine at NFL Network. He hosts a podcast called Mostly Banter, but he's also the radio voice of Cal State Florida basketball, which means he got to go to Detroit for their tournament game against Purdue. We're going to talk about that and all the wackiness that happened in the first weekend of March Madness, including for the first time ever a one-seed Virginia, losing to a 16-seed Maryland-Baltimore County. We talked about what exactly is Maryland-Baltimore County and the upsets that made this weekend special. Then I talked to Adam Musto, NFL Network, another co-worker of mine, a big research stats guy. We talked about NFL free agency, all the moves, Kirk Cousins on the Vikings, Keenum on the Broncos, what the Browns, the Bears, the Patriots have been doing. We break down all that and more on the Money Mitch Effect. I think it's time to start the show. Let's go. All right, Money Mitch Effect. Time to talk about a wild, epic first weekend of March Madness. Got my boy Brandon Marcus here, host of the Mostly Banner podcast, co-worker, former co-worker of mine, NFL Network. Brandon, welcome back to the Money Mitch Effect. Dude, great to be here. Glad to uh, talk all different sports. I feel like we've discussed baseball before, we've discussed basketball, NFL. We uh, did a little props last time I was on, and now we get to talk about March Madness. Yeah, we did do props bets, and uh, uh, hopefully, I mean, it didn't go quite as bad for me uh, <laughs> as that one did, but uh, no, it was uh, an interesting time of the year. We both have some stories to get into, but first things first, B-Mark, I know you cover a lot of sports at working in sports, but being the radio guy for Cal State Fullerton, to actually go to Detroit to watch them play, they qualified for March Madness lost to Purdue, but just that experience, what was that like as a team that was the fourth seed in their own tournament to have to run the gauntlet to get to March Madness? What was it like to go to Detroit and cover a March Madness game? Dude, it was awesome. It's funny because obviously we have both watched this tournament our entire lives. I mean, in high school, I remember going and bringing like a transistor radio and checking my phone in between classes, my little tiny Nokia to check scores and stuff like that. And try and sneak in uh, watching a game or two on the computer and all of a sudden here you, here I am 30 years old and a chance to actually go to the NCAA tournament with a team I never thought that's something that would happen and just the second we got off the plane first of all we took a charter which was awesome don't have to worry about going through security or any of that garbage and then right when we land we get on a bus and we have a police uh, police escort straight from the airport all the way to the hotel. So there's like four or five different police cars and they're each blocking off an entrance. And once you pass the entrance that the police car is at, it'll then speed past the bus and go to the next entrance that there's no cop at to block them. So that we're literally going straight on this freeway with nobody stopping us, which is so cool. And then um, just being at the tournament, got to see Ian Eagle, which was really cool. And obviously Purdue is a tremendous team. Being that close to Isaac Haas, I mean, that dude is enormous. Like, you yeah. look at seven foot two, 290, and then you go and you see seven foot two, 290, and you're like, holy shit, this guy is absolutely enormous. And he just looks like, I don't even, he's like a monster. I swear, he, he's legit look, look, looks like a monster. But it was a fun experience. Obviously, they lost, but in the first half, we kept it close. 
And uh, it was cool to just be a part of all the media there and going to the press conferences and being at the team hotel. And it was definitely something that I'll uh, cherish and remember. Yeah, it was a good game. I mean, Purdue just went on that run at the end of the first half and, and right. really took it into overdrive right when the second half tipped. But I thought uh, I thought the game was cool. I, I'm jealous of the experience, but that's awesome that you got to be a part of it. It's so wild, right? You've been doing this for a few years. Did you think this was going to be the team to break through? I mean, they had their they had that heart heartbreaking win or heart stopping win, I should say, in the quarterfinals of their own tournament. Yeah, you know what's funny is that if you would have asked me two months ago which team do I think I would go to the NCAA tournament with, I would have said UC Irvine women's because they were just on this incredible run and they were great. And then they kind of fell flat because they were second in their conference and they kind of fell off a little bit towards the end of the season. They ended up getting the three seed and lost in the second round, which was a huge bummer. And then Fullerton, they were the four seed. They go and beat Long Beach State, who they got absolutely crushed by at the Pyramid. They, they win that in round one, and that's because of a missed free throw. And then they go in round two, and they take on the number one seed in UC Davis, a team that beat them the year before, and they were somehow able to keep them to 52 points, which was a season low for Davis. And then they go and they beat UC Irvine and just absolutely crush them in the finals. It was such a cool run, and to be a part of that was awesome because Deidre Taylor was the head coach of Cal State Fullerton. I mean, what he's done with that program – to go 1-15 in conference, and then three years later to go to the NCAA tournament just shows you how incredible of a turnaround that is. Yeah, it's, it's uh, impressive, to say the least. And uh, I'm very, again, happy that you got to have that experience. And uh, I don't know. Now that we know that anything's possible, who knows what could happen in, in the years to come. Just Dude, seriously, tournament. here we are. I, I look at the 15 verse 2, and... It was uh, it was only eight wins by a two seed, or rather a 15 seed against a two. And I was like, all right, this is possible. The first th- 13, 14 minutes. And then we're on the plane home, and one of the guys who's a manager happens to have his phone on, and he gets an alert somehow. He has service, and he said the 16 beat a one. I, I just didn't believe him when he said that. He's like, I'm like, UMBC, what the, what the hell are you talking about? Virginia, everyone was talking about Virginia winning it all, and then I know they lost their sixth man like a couple days before the tournament started, but... Nobody expected them to lose in the first round to a 16 seed. That's bonkers. Right. And, you know, normally when we start these conversations about any given topic in sports on this show, whether it be March Madness or the start of baseball season or, or NFL free agency, what I like to do is just ask the guests what, what they were most impressed by, what was maybe the most disappointing. But I feel like we'd just be wasting time because it's going to come back to Virginia versus UMBC, right? Yeah, 100%. Whenever a 16 seed. <laughs> Not only does a 16 seed beat the one seed, the 16 beat the one seed by 20 wow, points. Beat them and down. then somehow, so they put 74 points on the number one defense in the nation, and they come back two days later, and they're only able to score 43 points against Kansas State. Like, it just, how does that happen? Like, it's one of those things where you look and you see the upset, and you're like, oh, yeah, they're going to lose an extra round anyways. And everyone thought that with UMBC. But you don't expect them to go and just destroy Virginia like that and then just get crushed by Kansas State. Like, it was 50-43, to 43, so it was a close game. But to only put up 43 points is pathetic. Well, that game, the Virginia game, I think what we look at from a 1 versus a 16, it was one of the last things in sports that we hadn't seen. It was in that yeah. sacred ground. Right. But I, like many people, I'm assuming yourself, thought that whenever this did happen, were to happen, it would be a close game or some drama at the end. They beat him by oh, 20 points. <laughs> like, yeah. That's you more surreal like, than anything. Yeah, I mean, the, the funny thing is, when we watch the tournament, you obviously see the scores in the top. Because I remember in the old days when we didn't have all four channels going at one time, 
you would just look at the top and you'd be like, oh, crap, like the one seed and the two seed, like they're only winning by two or three. This is a close game. But this is like a 20-point win. Like it, it was not close at any point in the second half. I mean, UMBC scored 20 more points in the second half. They scored 53 points against the top defense. Like, I understand, like, as an Arizona fan, I watched that game against Buffalo, and teams get hot. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, Buffalo going 15 for 30 from three is just stupid. And then they were terrible from three the next game, and Kentucky beat the crap out of them. But it's just one of those things where you get hot, and we say any given Sunday, right, in the NFL, I mean, and any given Saturday even for college football. But this is, like, legit any single day a team can get hot and that's exactly what umbc did i guess if we're splitting hairs here for virginia they never were the flashiest team a lot of people myself included called them boring so if you're gonna paint a perfect scenario of something like this happening it'd probably take a team that offensively if if a team does get hot against them they're not able to put up points fast but there's not a whole lot more to explain for how this could happen On, on the saturday before the tournament started i'll give you this little funny aside and then we can kind of move on but uh, I had my parents over. My dad was like, oh, UMBC, I saw that scroll. They just made the tournament. And I had no idea who they were or what those <laughs> letters stood for. I pride myself on knowing a lot about college sports. Had no clue what UMBC stood for. <laughs> I'd never heard of them before either. <laughs> so, uh, legit, I'd never heard of them before. In my life. I, and I didn't even know that they were a Maryland school until uh, someone that I follow on Twitter that's from that area starts like taking pride in them. And I'm like, oh, okay. So they're from I didn't realize it was Maryland, Baltimore County. Like, what a weird name for a school in the first place. I love how Bruce Weber said, we took, I, I got my team together to watch this, to watch the upset happening, even though it was our opponent. It's like, yeah, to celebrate, because you knew how easy it would be now to get to the Sweet 16. Exactly. It's like with the, the stupid uh, John Calipari is busy just whining, complaining about his what, region. Really? That's not Such new. A tough region. Oh, blah, blah. What, what is that? The one... The two and the three are out, or the one, three, and four are all out. Like it's just yeah, give me a- one through four, uh, which is the first time the South region just in shambles. The first time since two thousand four that an entire one to four of a region don't make this. And that was the field. toughest region. Yeah, it's it's incredible that that UMBC Kansas State game looked like a glorified pick up pickup game last night. Uh, it was a lot of energy, but not a lot of good fundamentals being played. And I think that's been the theme in a lot of these games. But Brandon, Marcus, Money, Mitch effect. The only thing, the only team that I think gets saved by how Virginia lost that game is Arizona. Because up until that happened, that was a, a catastrophic uh, disappointment to say the least. I know Buffalo played well. They shot the lights out. But a lot of people, myself included, were expecting big things from this Arizona Wildcat team. It just didn't happen. And now they go from potential championship team to trying to fill out a roster with two guys NBA bound, bolted before they took their jerseys off. We know Buffalo shot well, but are you at all surprised by just a lack of heart Arizona showed when the going got tough? Yeah, and you know what I'm even more disappointed at? Just watching the game. I was really disappointed in the lack of adjustments from Sean Miller because you knew it was going to happen every single time. You knew that a Buffalo player was going to drive, kick out to an open shooter, and they're going to make the extra pass. I mean, they did that every single time. And the defense was just so poor. And Sean Miller did nothing about it. And then on the other end, he saw Aiton getting double or triple teamed every single time he got the ball. And he just did not adjust to give him the ball in space. I mean, getting him the ball in the three-point line and him taking a bad three is not how that offense is supposed to run. And when you have Alonzo Trier and you have Raleigh Hawkins and you have DeAndre Aiton, I mean, you have the number one pick in the draft. You're not supposed to lose to Buffalo. 
with the number one pick in the draft. It was just it was bad coaching. Honestly, I was really disappointed in Sean Miller. I thought he did a really bad job um, coaching his defense, which is something that he does really well normally. And uh, I just thought he did a bad job offensively. Yeah, it wasn't a blowout early. I mean, they were down a couple points at half. So yeah, regardless of a still, it should have never been at that point. No, they, they, they struck me as the typical team that thinks they can just switch the on switch. Like, it'll be okay. We'll snap out of it. We'll play well. And then the game just got away from them. Buffalo 15 for 30 from three. Arizona just two of 18. I mean, that's the game right there. But I will oh. say, getting out-rebounded, even though it was by one, 32-31, that can't happen when you have the lottery picks like that. That's just no. an effort thing to me. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, there were a lot of 50-50 balls that they just did not get after, and I don't understand why. And it's funny because you look at that team, and it doesn't strike you as a team that really scares you, Arizona. Like, I get they ran through the Pac-12 tournament, and that's what one of the reasons why everyone thought there was a, there were trendy picks to maybe go to the Elite Eight, the Final Four for the first time under Sean Miller. But if you look at the team, I mean, PJC, Parker Jackson Cartwright, he's not that great offensively. You have Aiton. I mean, you have Ristich. You have two big men. Which Buffalo, they didn't care because they oh, had guys that could match up. And then you expect guys outside to shoot. I mean, Trier, maybe he was decent, but nothing great. He should have been a lot better than he was. And like you said, I mean, when you get outscored by 39 points from three, you're going to lose. And their defense on the perimeter D was terrible. Buffalo got so many open looks. The same looks they got against Kentucky, they missed. And so it's just one of those things where one game they hit them and one game they missed them. Isn't that, isn't that just March Madness also? Yeah. Kinda, like, it oh, doesn't yeah, matter absolutely. who the better players are. One team can just have the shooting day of their lives and want it more, and crazy things can happen in a 40-minute game. Yeah, dude, I mean, you just look up and down this tournament. I mean, games were close. Like, Michigan State beat Bucknell 82-78. Like, how is that game supposed to be close? Marshall beat Wichita State. Auburn beat Charleston by four. Well, like, uh, <laughs> let me let me just give you a, a precursor. There's a couple teams I'm crossing off my my bet list, having been in Vegas for the weekend. Michigan State is a disaster. But they were supposed to possibly win it all. <laughs> That's the craziest part about it. I think Jay Billis said, looking at the bracket, Michigan State's my pick to win it all, and everyone thought North Carolina would be a pick to win it all and go back to back, and they're done. Oh, I have, I have some thoughts on Michigan State. We're going to get to them in just a second. But just to recap the breast of the South, Loyola, Chicago, and Nevada are going to meet in a Sweet 16 matchup. I mean, Kentucky could go to the Final Four by beating a 7 seed at the best, potentially an 11 or 9. So um, uh, Loyola's a great story, too. I mean, they, they took really close wins. And then how about Nevada? Nevada was done. Two straight yeah. games. And the funny thing about Nevada, for anybody that hasn't watched them, they don't have a bench. No. Like I'm not kidding. They have one guy. They play exactly. six people. They only pay, play six. Yeah. Okay. Nevada, great story. The the first comeback in round one against Texas, which was yeah. uh, I, I would say more on this more along the lines of just a great comeback. Cincinnati just gave that game away. That that should never happen at any level of basketball. How Cincinnati performed down the stretch. I credit Nevada for having the will, but my God, you're up 22 points in the second half. It's embarrassing. You're supposed to close that out. And teams just choke because they just change up their offense when they're winning by that much. They're like, all right, we're going to use the clock, and then we just have a bad shot at the end of possession. And that, you can't do that. In college sports and the NBA, you cannot do that. We saw time and time again in the NBA playoffs, a team will be up by three or four in the last couple of minutes, and they'll just their offense will stop. And you can't do that. You, you got up big because your offense was flowing. Yeah, I, I was I was stunned too. But I also think the other flip side of this is 
there's teams that maybe haven't had adversity all season. Tennessee comes to mind when we talked about Loyola Chicago. They weren't yeah. expected to be this good this year. Everything was going well. They didn't have really any seniors. So everyone's like, we got a couple years with this group. This is gravy. And then they're playing Loyola Chicago. One of their starters is out last minute for the game, and suddenly they're in a close game. That 98-year-old sister of Jean's dancing on the side, and then <laughs> you lose by one. So I don't. I think that that's part of it too. Michigan State's another team that you know wasn't didn't have themselves so many dog fights with real consequences, and now they're out. It's the way of the game. Yeah, a lot of these top teams. It's funny because you would think that they were tested during their conference and they'd be ready to go, but they just folded. And it was so strange to see it happen with so many of these teams that just seem to be confused by the spotlight, which you would have never expected. Well, as we keep going on here into uh, the West region, and if we're talking about Cincinnati collapses, we got to add Xavier to the mix because yeah. they weren't far off from their uh, inner city rivals uh, with what they did and choking it out against Florida State. I mean, that was just equally as bad there was a lot of teams that just didn't know how to handle the end of game situations Xavier looked a lot like the team they beat last year Arizona that's what that game reminded me of was just down the stretch Xavier could not get a bucket it, it that was, it was another team that was trendy too like they were trendy to go all the way and then all of a sudden I mean you get outscored in the second half you were up by two at the half you end up losing by five and uh, I just I just don't get it with some of these teams that are so well coached. Michigan State so well coached. Xavier so well coached, and these teams just fall apart to teams like Florida oh, State. Whoa, what, what's paint. happening? Oh. You pull up a box score by the way, and it starts playing. Um, I, just, I, I don't understand. <laughs> like, how does that happen? Um, yeah, no, I, I I can't really put my finger on it. I just think Xavier they were this senior laden team that everybody had high hopes for, but. In their conference, I wasn't exactly sold on them. They were clearly inferior to Villanova, and I just I, I wasn't buying Xavier as a legit threat. Not saying that I thought they would blow a game like that to Florida State, but you know here we are. The only the only mini like region I'd say that went the way I thought it would, P. Mark was Gonzaga to uh, beating Ohio State in the round of thirty two. Yeah, as an Ohio State fan, this was about as far as I thought they'd go. Chris Holtman did a great job with a team that shouldn't have probably made the tournament. Yeah, and, and the Zaga's clearly better. Right, and the Big Ten was kind of off this year because I was listening to the Purdue guys talk um, when they faced Cal State Fullerton. They were talking about the conference, and uh, their conference obviously was not great. But then again, you now have Michigan and Purdue in the Sweet 16, and Michigan's been really good. I mean, they were great in the Big Ten tournament. They ran through everybody, and then they beat Purdue in the finals. And then Purdue, of course, is this team that has four seniors starting before Isaac Haas got hurt and one sophomore, and their sophomore is their leading scorer, that's a team that's usually built for March Madness. Right. I mean, they are built to win it all. When you have that many seniors, you expect them to go far. Well, I'm glad you brought up Michigan because I really want to talk about what went down in that game where they beat Houston on a buzzer beater three, which was the buzzer beater so far of March Madness. Um, all due respect to Loyola and what they've done. But Houston... Great win over San Diego State. That was maybe an underratedly great game of the tournament. I think that's one that a lot of people didn't really see. Michigan plays them. Houston's winning most of the game. Houston's in control. And they miss free throw after free throw. Michigan hits the shot to win it. It was incredible. It was a great play play design. It was everything you asked for. But why were they not guarding the inbound pass? First question. It's so many teams do that. I don't understand it. I, I don't understand why you don't stop 
the player that gets – I mean, when the ball comes in, I don't understand why you don't put pressure on it right away. Put pressure on the inbounder at all times, and you put pressure on the person that gets the ball in. You never give them space, especially with that little amount of time left. And it was a great play. I mean, they were able to find an open shooter. And I mean, he was open because he was, what, 30 feet away from the basket? Yeah, I mean, that, you can't really fault the shot making. But yeah. that's my whole thing is you got to guard the inbound. And I know people, a lot of, like, Bayheim's teams, they like to foul. But it, it's hard to execute they did. on the run. Yesterday, yeah. they fouled all the time, and oh. it was terrible. I wanted to kill myself at the end of that game. <laughs> that's so annoying, the way Bayheim does it. But, oh, my yeah. God. It's I mean, smart, but, it, Jesus, it's terrible. It is. And this gets to my bigger concern of, of these games, if you're ever going to put a little money on them. It's hard to trust college kids to make free throws and do smart things. Uh, yes. <laughs> Yes. I mean, it's, it's like in the college football. It's college kickers in college football. And in college basketball, it's free throws. You can never trust them making a free throw at the right time because all of a sudden you miss three or four down the stretch and you've opened a door for the other team. That happened with Nevada. That's the reason why Nevada was able to get to where they were. Yeah, it's just incredible to say the least. But Brandon Marcus, Money Mitch effect. One more surprising update on the left side of the bracket. Maybe not as big of an upset, but just from a wow standpoint, the beatdown that the Aggies laid on the Tar Heels yesterday. That was a weird game because I was watching that and expected during the entire first half for North Carolina to come back and make a run. And they didn't. And then they drew up a play to the end of the first half where they got a guy right in front of the hoop with like, I think it was half a second left. And they threw a lob at the basket and the guy just had to touch it in. And it hit the back of the rim and went out. Wow. And that was such a big swing because if they would have gotten the basket, they would have been down by 12 going to the half, get a little bit of momentum. They come out in the second half, and they were completely flat. And Texas A&M was hitting every shot. They were getting every rebound. And, I mean, kudos to them for beating a team like North Carolina that won it last year and had the target on their back, obviously. But these trendy picks of North Carolina, Michigan State, Arizona, Virginia, Xavier, they're all gone. I don't remember a year like this where there are this many top teams that were picked to win it all that are already gone before the Sweet 16 starts. Yeah, that was an AM team that just believed that they were better, and you saw it throughout the game. I had my doubts about North Carolina for a lot of the reasons that you brought up. Uh, I just didn't think their talent was as great as last year. They lost some guys. They were kind of getting by on name recognition, in my opinion, relying on, on players that were role players a year ago but you're right a lot of the trendy picks have already been eliminated and it's going to be interesting to see how this bracket shakes out we didn't even talk about another upset you know normally in years a four losing to a 13 the way wichita did to marshall would be the headline of the first two days that's not even a blip on the radar no because now we expect the four versus 13 and the five versus 12 to possibly be close and some of these schools just don't get the credit we said earlier virginia and xavier when you look at the bracket immediately in that region people are filling out their bracket they're not having virginia and xavier in the final four it's just one of those things where you just don't trust these teams you don't trust virginia because they don't have an offense and you don't trust xavier because they're not a power five conference and when you're not in these power conferences you can't trust these teams when it comes to march madness because sure the upsets are great we enjoy the upsets but when it gets to the round of eight when the elite eight and the final four we don't want to see these crappy teams. We want to see teams that are good, that have been established, and are ready to be there. But some of these teams, like Virginia and Xavier, they're just not good enough. And no. so they get sent out early. 
And I do think, though, it's funny how the bracket works this way because the right side of the bracket is fairly predictable. I mean, if Syracuse beating Michigan State is a big upset, no question, the way they did it with their 2-3 zone and their ugly. It's a huge upset. It's just ugly basketball. Great. I love it. I love a good strategy. But it sucks to watch. If they would have played on Thursday, Michigan State would have beat them. But because they played so quickly after that game on on a Friday or whatever, then, and they played Friday-Sunday as opposed to playing that game on Friday and playing it on Sunday, Tom Izzo has less time to prepare for Syracuse, even though he should be able to prepare knowing that he might face Syracuse. Mm-hmm. But you have less time to face that zone and prepare for them. And so that's just one of the reasons why they won. I think, I think I'd be surprised – um, next round, if Syracuse does anything, I think Duke, beat Duke. Yeah, Duke. I think Duke's going to beat the crap out of them. I mean, Duke might have been the most impressive team next to Villanova, who put it on Alabama in the I, second half of that game. I, I was going to say, I think now at this point, I think Duke has to be the favorite to win it all alongside Villanova. Yeah, it, it's hard to argue that given how they've looked. I just think I don't know if you heard what Wally Zerbiak said in the pregame or in the postgame after uh, Syracuse Michigan State, which I thought was really fascinating. He said, "Kids, college kids." college players aren't practicing mid-range jump shots as much anymore and that's how you beat a zone team like Syracuse yeah and it doesn't help it doesn't help when the middle of the zone you're getting the ball to a guy who can't shoot because you have to be able to get the guy to the middle of the zone that can turn around and hit a face-up jumper from the free throw line and they just weren't able to do that and they were passing up some jump shots they were forcing shots I mean they shot under 30 percent that game was so bad to watch <laughs> it was brutal the it was, last two minutes was just it was the last two minutes, all 40. I mean, Michigan State, down the stretch, I think, missed their last 12 or 13 shots. It was bad. I can't even remember times I've seen, because Michigan State was shooting, if I remember correctly, towards their own bench. So by the end of the time, the players on the bench would throw their hands up, but you know they didn't really think the ball was going in. No. <laughs> it was, wow, it was incredible. But we're in the round of 16. Before we get to just a little bit of a look ahead, Brandon Marcus, Money Mitch Effect, I did have a couple interesting uh, antidotes to bring about my time up from in Vegas this weekend. Yes, let's talk about Vegas. I want to hear talk about it because uh, being in Vegas for the NCAA tournament, especially the first couple rounds, is something I've always wanted to do. And I've been during the Final Four, and it's crazy watching guys who know exactly what the spread is, and you're all rooting for the over/under. You're all rooting for the first half spread, the second half spread. But I've never been there for the first round. And you were there for the first round uh-huh. with so many games going on. What was it like? So I'm glad you asked that. Uh, here's the first thing I'll say. Shout out to the Mirage. That was a sports book that we hit up. It was a, a great look. And the wait, first... here's a question for you. Did yeah, you have to get early to book a? I mean, to get a seat, or were you like standing? So the first day we did one of those uh, pay money up front for the reserved uh, all inclusive type deals. All inclusive. So, uh, let's just say it was a. Let's just say it wasn't as expensive as you think, but just for an all-you-can-drink all-day type deal. Really? So yeah. So we did that on Thursday. It's good to do one day of that. The next day, Friday, we we got we were basically standing until the evening. We moved around a little bit, but um, yeah. So we got there early to to answer your first question. So we were there from tip off to the first game until the end of the last game. That's you know twelve hours plus. Wow, in the sport so game. much basketball, so much going on, and I'll, and I'll just say this: you don't realize how many people are just full on on every bit of action until something happens and there's cheers or groans. My favorite bet that I learned about this weekend was the first to fifteen points bet. 
That is the coolest bet. It's the most interesting, heartbreaking right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to straight, you know, and you get odds on whatever team it is. But you like to think that there's a chance an underdog can cover. We're sitting there at the table while Oklahoma's playing Rhode Island. It's 14 to 13. People are cheering. We didn't really know what was going on. There's people standing up going nuts. A guy's in front of us, fist out, chanting. And Rhode Island missed the free throw. Oklahoma came back down and drained a three. And he just crumbled into his chair. I'm like, that's the <laughs> Vegas story I want right there. It How do you know what game they're watching, though? Because there are so many different games going on. Right. How do you right. know what game that people are reacting to? So in, in that time, there was only really one. I think Tennessee might have just started, uh, but it was right in the morning. But, yeah, that's the other thing. Uh, most sports books do a good job in you know, putting the what quote-unquote the premier game is on any main TVs. But there's a lot. And I will say this. There's a lot of uh, you got to know exactly when to make your bets, too. Because the morning of the first games, it's impossible to go unless you want to wait in line for like 40 minutes yeah. to put down bets. But but having said that, right after that clears up, there's an open you know there's open counters and people are running up, betting on second half lines, betting on parlays, everything. Uh, Over under is incredible too. We didn't have the greatest week, the, the group of guys that went. But I gotta say, whenever whenever anything happens, this is the best Vegas moments. Whenever you just aren't supposed to win and you luck out and just something ridiculous happens at the end. Like oh. the Kentucky Davidson overhitting because Davidson decides to foul for the last two minutes of the game down 10. How about the Kansas game? The Kansas game that I think was at Seton yeah. Hall hit a yeah. random three when they were up uh, when it was a seven-point game and they hit a three to uh, cover the spread. Right. I stayed out of that one, but that was uh, a disaster. Kentucky Davidson, another game. Luckily, I had nothing going on. Davidson hits a three. The line was five. They lose by five. So then you have a push and people are going crazy too. It's it's a fun experience because it's just full degenerate mode left and right. Oh, 100%. You know, and that's the one thing I'll say, my one piece of advice is if you're going to go there for the f- true fan experience, I bre- I personally wouldn't do it, but don't get upset when somebody's rooting against something that happens to your team. It's not personal. <laughs> like it, it's not like the people in the sports book are actively hating on Duke or Kansas or Kentucky or whatever. There's a pretty good chance there's money riding on it, and it's just not personal. Right, exactly. So, but no, I would say it was great. I mean, the second day we went, we we didn't do the all day experience because it's exhausting, you know. But being there for that Virginia game was phenomenal. You know, so- just being there at that time and and seeing all the stuff go down and. You know, the first real buzzer beater was uh, Loyola beating Miami that we saw there, and that was pretty, pretty wild. Yeah, that's, I mean, to be there for that type of moment, it's so cool because you're with everybody. Like, you're all pumped up about it. It's not just, like, you sitting at home watching it, like, oh, it's, like, you and, like, thousands of people, oh, like, money on the line. Yeah, especially when uh, I think one of my favorite reactions to those first 15 points notwithstanding, but at the end of a game when a team is covered by one, when you get everybody chanting, don't foul, don't foul, don't foul. <laughs> those of are the ones that get me. Yeah, it's just when you get into the when you get into the 20 point spread range. Actually, I'll tell you this one before we move on. Duke in the first half of their first game, I can't even I mean, I'm looking at the bracket right now in their uh in their first first game. Uh, of the term against Iona, the first half line was 13. Grayson Allen hit a three to hit it oh. as time expired. I don't know how they do it. I want to know how they do it. Like, how do they? How does the analytics and the stats match up so they nail it so spot on? It really is incredible. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> there's even when it seems like an over and under is going to hit, 
by a lot and then it barely hits or sometimes doesn't hit, it's like, wow, how did that happen? But they know. They yeah. just know. Fun fact, by the way. Fun fact. John Calipari coach teams are 11-2 and two straight up and against the spread in the Sweet 16. So there you go. That's a nugget for this uh, this coming weekend. All right. Well, 11-2 and what? Because I'm, I'm assuming you took out the uh, the games they gave away. Uh, they're 11 and two. <laughs> Apparently, the stat: they're 11 yeah. wins and two losses straight up, and against the spread in the Sweet 16. And he's six and zero at Kentucky. Okay, I wonder how many of those will get vacated, though. Yeah, well, <laughs> but no. As we as we wrap this up, Brandon Marcus, Money Mitch effect. Let's look forward. I hate it. I hate the fact that we're looking at Kentucky in the final I hate four. Thursday. Can we just get rid of Thursday? Thursday's so bad. Loyola, Nevada, and Michigan. Kansas State, Kentucky, and Florida State, Gonzaga. That's a four versus nine, a five versus nine, a three versus seven, and a seven versus eleven. Get out of here. There's only one good game on that slate, and that's Michigan A&M. Yeah, a hundred percent. The Kentucky line's only five and a half. I think Kentucky beats them by more than that. Um, and the Gonzaga line's five and a half. I think Gonzaga beats Florida State by more than that because now you get to the point where it's teams that have been there and know what to do, and teams that have never been there before. That's why I think Gonzaga knows what the hell they're doing. Kentucky knows what they're doing. I think Michigan's well coached. And then you get to Friday and you see like Villanova versus West Virginia, Kansas versus Clemson. Clemson is a four and a half point underdog. How how is it only four and a half? Clemson's not that good. Kansas didn't look hasn't looked great. I'm not just saying the Seton Hall game, but there was decent stretches in Big Twelve play yeah. where they were not great. So yeah, I'm with you on Kansas, but Everybody can have a clunker, and Clemson did turn it around against Auburn, beat them senselessly. Yeah. Um, well, that's Auburn. I mean, that's, that was so weird. I would say my favorite game of the Sweet 16 is Villanova-West Virginia. West Virginia came out late at the end of that season. I think um, they're going to be a very tough game for Villanova. But That whole slate's good on Friday. I, all five of those games, I think, are going to be, except for Duke-Syracuse, but that still has intrigue because you know that Syracuse can just muck it up and make it look like a bad game. But those four games should all be decent. So who are we going to go with for Final Four? Um, I'll lead off and I'll say, and maybe I'm talking myself into it, but I'm going to say Kentucky, I'll go Michigan, Duke, and Villanova. I just want to see that Duke-Villanova game. Yeah, I'm right there with you on that Duke-Villanova. Um, I like, yeah, I like that a lot. Because um, I, I just, I, normally I would pick Purdue in the East region to maybe put up a fight against Villanova. But now that Haas is out, I don't think that they can do it. He's uh, officially not, not coming back. Not no, not, no. I mean, he'll try and I'm sure get a brace within the next five days. That actually is uh, suitable to the NCAA's needs and wants. But I, th- I think Duke versus Kansas. I like Duke in that one. Um, and then in the South region, um, Loyola, Nevada, Kansas state, Kentucky, God, <laughs> such a weird, weird, <laughs> Yeah, why, why I think you have to go Kentucky, and then, yeah, I, I think I Michigan Gonzaga is the game that I want to see, and I think Michigan wins that game. Okay, we're gonna have so so. Let's just recap this. We're gonna have one of these following eight teams in the title game: Loyola, mm-hmm. Nevada, Kentucky, Kansas State, Gonzaga, Florida State, Michigan, or A and M. Yep. <laughs> yep. We need to, this is what we need to bring back: hockey reseeding. And, and the highest seed there, by the way, is three. Let's reseed the bracket. <laughs> like, I'm, uh, I'm down for that. I mean, maybe once, maybe not now, but once you get to the final four, I think we should reseed. <laughs> or the elite eight. You can do the elite eight. 
Yeah, that might be hard with the logistics of it if we tell, you know, Loyola, Chicago, you got to fly over to uh, Omaha. <laughs> so. Hey, but at least USC is playing its Western Kentucky tonight in the uh, the second round of the NIT where USC needed double overtime to uh, beat some random school last week. I love how you're still locked in to the, uh, the NIT. It's good. This is true fanhood there. So uh, gross. But, you know, this tournament's been fun. It's been exciting. Um, Wait, by year, the way. One thing, uh, for anybody that's listening and they want to say, like, for example, Syracuse fans, just because you won two games doesn't mean that you should have been in the tournament. I hate when people say that because then you could say that Arizona had no business being in the tournament because they lost in the first round. Like, just because you win two games does not mean that you should have been in the tournament. Well, yeah, you're preaching to the choir. This is like the old small school in a BCS game back in the day. Yeah. End results don't justify it. we're trying to impart logic on certain fan bases that I don't think it's, it's going to not going to happen. <laughs> so. Oh my god, Syracuse fan base is so annoying. Yesterday on Twitter during the game, they're complaining about fouls the entire game when it was going both ways, and then they're the team that wins. Like, just shut up and watch the game. Uh, it's that first four run though. Every year we get somebody that usually makes it to the Sweet Sixteen. So, well, dude, that's the same thing as the AL wild card, the NL wild card. How often do we see that that team that wins that game ends up going on a run? Pretty impressive, pretty impressive. Well, B-Mark, this was a blast. Thanks for calling in. Good luck with uh, the other sports that you're going to be calling the next few days. And uh, get yourself some relaxation. It's clear you've earned it. But thanks again for calling in. Do what I can. I appreciate you for uh, having me on. Until next time, though. You'll be on the Money Mitch Effect soon. I don't know what sport. I can't. We got baseball season around the corner, buddy. I know. As an Angels fan, you've had a big offseason, so I'll give you some time. Yeah, big offseason with Otani and his 100 average and his ERA of 3,000. There's been two types of Angels fans in this city. And I know what type you are now, so that's good. <laughs> it's God. I, I, no, I actually am totally fine with it. The kid's okay. 23 years old, yeah. so I, I have some optimism towards the future. Okay. I, I hope Otani does. I just want to know what the what the game plan is going to be for where he plays. And, you know, what the is he going to pitch a lot? Is he going to be a, a hitter most of the time? What's going to happen there? A lot of intrigue. Can he throw strikes and can he hit? That's the question. Always is. But Brandon Marcus, thanks again for being on the Money Mitch Effect. For sure, buddy. Huge thanks to Brandon Marcus for hopping on today's show. You can catch him on the Mostly Banner podcast where he continues to pump out phenomenal work. Thanks again to him for appearing on today's show. Next up, it's Adam Musto. We're going to talk NFL free agency. It's been a wild week, to say the least. A lot of big names changing teams. What it means for their market value, what Kirk Cousins means in Minnesota, the quarterback musical chairs game, are the Browns a lot better? Why did the Jets trade up from six to three? All those questions we try to answer and more. It's Adam Musto on the Money Mitch Effect. All right, now on the Money Mitch Effect, back again. Haven't talked to him since football season wrapped, but. Adam Musto, NFL Network, doing research there. It's how we met back in the day. Adam, thanks for joining the show. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me again. First off, uh, I don't know if you're, you know, I know the city's buzzing because of Loyola Chicago right now in March Madness, so I know it's, it's hard to keep everyone in check there, but have you noticed the difference with the city? Is, is the city rallied behind this obscure Jesuit school? 
Yeah, I think we are. We're uh, we're hopping on board. Actually, the funny thing is, um, I was hoping to go to their last regular season game. They're playing Illinois State to close out the season, and the game actually sold out. They play in a pretty small arena; it's only about five thousand fans. So tickets that are usually in like the ten dollar range all of a sudden skyrocketed to about two hundred dollars. It ended up becoming the hottest ticket for that weekend. And yeah, I mean, I know they had some competition this week. Saturday's game was right on St. Patrick's Day, which is another big deal. But a lot of the bars that you know people were at for St. Patrick's Day were showing the game and. And I think people are starting to jump on board. You know, I think Illinois is a great basketball school traditionally, but it's been a while since a lot of teams from this state have done well in the tournament. So I think any time, I feel like everyone kind of is on board to whoever, you know, they'll root for Northwestern, Illinois, Southern, you know, Northern, whatever. And uh, and to make it this far, is, I think it's great for, you know, whether you went to the school or whether you just kind of have walked around Rogers Park once in a while, you're going to jump on a bandwagon. Well, it's certainly exciting. Uh, and, and to see this team do something that it hasn't been done for them in a while and go into a region now that's completely blowing up in the south who knows how far they can go but had to bring that up because uh we're all about obscure schools on this show and Loyola Chicago oh, yeah. just right to the list oh yeah and maybe uh transitioning to football I just want to bring up their national championship was in 1963 their last NCAA tournament was in 1985 those are the last two years the Bears won a the Super Bowl <laughs> in the NFL championship so maybe 2018 will be a thing to come for the Bears if uh history wow. as well <laughs> wow maybe and the ramblers i do like that nickname too that was a good oh, one. Yeah. one of the unique ones as well but transitioning to football we always get hype for free agency every year some years it doesn't really you know live up to the billing but i think this year far exceeded it i'll ask you this question though can you remember a time when as many big name players changed teams i can't off the top of my head think of a year i'd have to go back at least a decade i would think to, to figure a year when as many prominent players are switching teams. Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough. You know, I, I think just kind of looking at the list, you could almost make a pretty solid team based on the guys that have which teams going from Tyron Matthew, Jimmy Graham, you know, even Sammy Watkins, obviously the quarterbacks. I mean, Richard Sherman, these are guys that have made iconic plays in the NFL, and it's kind of crazy to see them jumping ship. Guys that, you know, some have established themselves with their current teams, and then they're going to be looking, in, you know, wearing a different uniform heading into 2018. We get this a lot with certain players, though. Unfortunately, when you get to your early 30s, it's that time for a certain build of players. But I think it's a perfect storm of that. It's the fact that we have quarterbacks, a quarterback in particular in his prime, you know, reaching mega deals. And we also have some teams up against it salary cap-wise that were asking players to take a pay cut, which obviously in their best interest was not to do so. So I think that really deepened the free agency pool. I want to start with Minnesota because it may not have been the first domino to fall. That may have been their former quarterback, which we'll touch on later. But Kirk Cousins was the prize of this free agency. Everybody wanted him, but we saw leading up to the start of free agency that Minnesota was the team in best position to get him. They do in a record contract with all that guaranteed money. I think it's about $84 million for three years. But Adam, this is a guy that... We all think is pretty much a top 10 quarterback. He's in his 20s. He's going to a team that already went to the NFC Championship game. Were you surprised by anything in this deal? The length being only a couple years, the guaranteed money, the fact that Minnesota was willing to give up Case Keenum and basically all their quarterbacks to get another guy. What, if anything, surprised you? Yeah, I mean, I guess the biggest thing, I guess the three-year deal, I was kind of used to maybe locking someone into like a five or five- or six-year deal. So it maybe does seem even, to me, honestly, a little short, even though I think as we've kind of seen, 
you know, whatever someone ends up signing for, especially as we've seen with these free agents, sometimes free agent contracts, they, 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 you know, say they're longer, but really I think just generally the way the NFL is everyone from top down is kind of on a one-year contract. Everything is, what have you done for me lately? So, you know, I don't know how all the guaranteed money will play out depending on how many years he plays, but, you know, he's obviously been doing the franchise tag for a few years. So, he bet, a, bet on himself, and I think it worked out for the short term, uh, at least. And I think now he kind of has a little more, more stability and kind of, you know, maybe has some things to build around and a team to b- build around him uh, for the long haul, hopefully for him in Minnesota. Yeah, and this is a guy we can't forget is used to betting on himself. He took two franchise tags, didn't want to rework the deal in Washington, part of the reason why he hit free agency, but he was comfortable betting on himself. If anything surprised me, it, it wasn't this revolutionary guaranteed money. I think it was only a matter of time before, especially in a sport like football where durability is such a factor, that we got two shorter deals, more guaranteed money up front. But this is a lot of pressure, right? Because he could have gone to the Jets, the Cardinals, the Broncos before they kind of saw the writing on the wall. And there wouldn't have been this pressure to win now. But he's going to a team, Adam, that was one game away last year from going to the Super Bowl that got rid of a quarterback that did a pretty good job for them. So I think if anything that surprises me is that he signed up for the biggest pressure possible. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, once you kind of put your stamp on that, that's kind of when you are the franchise guy. And I think we saw that a little bit with Derek Carr last year where, you know, you're kind of playing well, kind of uh, playing higher than people thought you would be. But then once you kind of get that big, big money and become the, the fran- uh, face of a franchise, uh, you really have to step up when, week in and week out. And, you know, there's really no excuses or, or you there's no excuses for off games and you kind of have to be on every single game. So that's what he's kind of signed up for. I haven't honestly been the biggest Kirk Cousins fan, but I think this is a really good situation for him just because, as you said, obviously Minnesota's been close. He hasn't historically, you know, only playing in one playoff game with the Redskins, but there was a lot of other things going on, I think, with the Washington front office and their organization. So I think, you know, they knew what they needed to do to get over the hump, and I think this is a good fit for them. And I understand why Minnesota did this too, especially adding Sheldon Richardson, showing up their backup quarterback position now with Simeon last year was a dream season to the end but there's no guarantees in the NFL so they know that they have a good team a great defense and their window to win is now you know you're getting you lose McKinnon but you're getting cooked back I think this is a, a team a chance and I like I appreciate anybody going for it and while I'm on that topic of teams going for it Adam the team that we'll have to see if what exactly shakes out with this season but in terms of going for it you got to like what the L.A. Rams are doing, right? Oh, yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, the crazy thing about the NFL now, I think obviously Patriots aside, is just that the window of opportunity is just so small. You don't have, I think, the old school approach maybe in the 80s or 90s where you could kind of build up, you know, make the playoffs one year, go to the NFC Championship game. And, you know, it's just been incredible, obviously, what the Rams did last year with the new head coach and just kind of the resurrection of Jared Goff. And I think, you know, they can definitely make make a run next year. They obviously are pretty young, and I feel like they don't have a whole lot of, like, you know, ticking time bombs on their team. But you do have to take advantage of the fact that you have to win as soon as you can. Do you think, I mean, I, I really do appreciate and, and respect any team that says, this is our weakness for the Rams, it was clearly cornerback. And they had Tremaine Johnson, who was making all that money. They get to leave in Peters, which are risky players. They're They're volatile, it's easy to say. But they're not worth what Johnson was making. They go and they get depth. Also, Roby Coleman as well, a cornerback there. So they just attack their weakness. I think especially a team that's on the upswing, if they can land Sue, I don't know if that's possible. I know he's going to visit with them. But he's a guy that got let go. He was making too much money in Miami. He's got a buyout there. If they can land Sue 
And, and they're just going to say, we're going to assemble talent on short deals. We're going to see what works. We're going to move on next year if we don't. you got to think that this approach might pay dividends in the long run. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, the funny thing is the NFL is definitely a copycat league, and I feel like things that you see one year to the next uh, make a big difference. I feel like it's somewhat similar, maybe somewhat comparable to what the Eagles did last year, and obviously it worked out with the Super Bowl. So, yeah, I think the offense is there, really showing up that secondary is good. And, and unfortunately, I mean, sometimes with free agents, you do get the, the vet players who are kind of only in it for the money. But I think when you kind of see the assembly of, of what you have going on, people buying into, you know, a coach and an offensive system, the whole team, you know, I think is excited. And, and just being in Los Angeles, I'm sure, you know, that's a, that's a buzz. People, I'm sure, want to bring a championship back to that city. So I think if people can just buy into that, they definitely have the talent and, and are working on, you know, making sure that they're, they can compete with anyone in the NFL. I'm really looking forward to it as well. Money Mitch Effect, Adam Musto talking NFL free agency. Before we get to our respective teams and some other big moves around NFL free agency, I got to touch back, circle back to the former Vikings quarterback, one of the former Vikings quarterbacks, Case Keenum. Denver made the first move when they saw that Keenum wasn't going to be coming back and they weren't going to get Cousins. They signed him. We know, Adam, that Denver still is, a, is in a position to potentially draft a quarterback in April. But Keenum and Denver, I, I, I'm very intrigued by this move. I think next year, around this time, we might be looking back on it, saying it was the under-the-radar move that needed more coverage because I think if he could just give them steady play, that's one thing this team has been missing. Yeah. And you know, the, the, I think Broncos are kind of a crazy case study last year. I just, you know, I've, I've watched them and I don't know exactly what it was that really went, went wrong with them. Yeah, obviously Joseph, they had some, maybe? You know, yeah, that's probably, that's probably a good answer right there. Um, you know, even they started the season off and not too bad and then it just kind of went, went downhill. So, you know, and it's funny, I know Von Miller talked about that. He doesn't want to lose one of his prime years. Um, obviously, the loss of Tlaib will, will hurt. But they do have a lot of talent on the defensive side of the ball. And I think Keenum is probably a good fit for what they what they need on, on offense. Um, you know, they have, have pretty decent running backs and, and wide receivers. So if you can just kind of write this ship, I can definitely see them being, a, you know, easily a 10 or 11-win team. Obviously, the, the West will be different with, you know, we'll see what the Raiders and the Chiefs and actually the Chargers do. But um, I think that, you know, he's obviously proven what he can do last year. Hopefully, it's not a fluke. But I think it at least gives them stability where they're not you know, flip-flopping between quarterbacks as they were last year. Yeah, I just think that there's certain teams that you don't need much. You don't need a lot of flash at certain positions. And for whatever reason, at quarterback, Denver's never really looked for that signal caller. It would be nice to have you know, the Tom Brady, the franchise type, Aaron Rodgers. But for what they do, for what their defense has, for Von Miller being in the prime, you basically just need a team that can move the ball and keep the defense honest and do a lot of the things that Keenum did for Minnesota last year. So I'm intrigued to see how this works. I applaud Denver for actually, you know, not not being left at the altar, so to speak, not being just out of it with the Cousins trade and how the draft's going, uh, the Cousins signing and how the draft positioning is going, where a lot of teams are, are trading up and they might not be in the best position to draft the quarterback. You needed something better than you had last year, and last year was just a disaster across the board. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, with Keenum's deal, that will give you a little bit more flexibility. It's not like you're spending, you know, a ton of money to get him. And, you know, they've always been able to run the ball. And, and really, it wasn't that much different than when they won the Super Bowl, you know, and Peyton Manning's last year. He wasn't spectacular in his last year. So they've obviously proven that defense can carry them to a title. Now i got to talk about, Adam, my team, the Cleveland Browns. I can't ever remember a time when they've dominated certain days of the NFL news cycle. So at the very least, that's refreshing. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I know they've obviously had a lot of turnover in their front office, and 
I feel like last year I was really on board to what they were doing. I think they still have, you know, some young players in the, in the pipeline. But, yeah, just a kind of crazy day with those trades um, at the quarterback position. I'll, and, uh, yeah. I don't know, are you – yeah. I mean, I'll start with this. I'm a fan of – first thing I'll say, Khan made all those trades, and without those picks, we wouldn't be in this position to acquire players, to make draft trades, to make draft picks. But I'm not going to sit here and say that he would have been able to pull the trigger on some of the deals that Dorsey made. I don't know that I'm a full-on fan of all of them, but when you get to a point where we were as bad as we were last year, the Browns, using the weak pronoun here, I just I think you need to get talent into that locker room. So I think some of these trades are good. They didn't you know ruin. They didn't get rid of too many of their high uh, high leverage draft positions. I like these moves. I think Tyrod Taylor is a bridge quarterback. I still absolutely think that they're going to draft one in one of their first picks. But I think Tyrod Taylor is good. You don't have to rush a rookie quarterback onto the field. I trust Jarvis Landry in his position to play as a determined guy he's got a franchise tag on him he's got a lot to play for whether it's for a long career at the Browns or somewhere else and you know adding players adding a guy like Carlos Hyde to upgrade the running back position which was subpar is also a good thing it's not an expensive contract and it gives you leverage not to have to take a Barkley or a running back high in the draft so I was a fan of these moves and and the biggest thing I think for the trades Adam is they didn't give up a lot of their ammunition Right, I think uh, you know they have a lot to work with, and and yeah, I, I like Tyrod Taylor too. Um, I think a lot of teams are kind of taking the Bears approach what they did last year, where you kind of get someone like Mike Glenn for a little bit. I mean, obviously that was an utter disaster, but at least you kind of want <laughs> the goal. Obviously, obviously yeah. they have right, exactly, and then you know you cut ties with them after a few games, or and then you kind of go on your way without having to throw a rookie in right away. You know, I don't know what will obviously. If the plan with Kaiser last year, when he, I thought it was a good sign when he was announced that he was going to be the opening day starter. I don't know if you know if his development was hurt at all with that process, but that's kind of I think a better approach, especially if you are a team with not a whole lot around you to not you know just throw a guy to the wolves right away. Yeah, and I also think as far as the receiver depth, I love Josh Gordon, but we still haven't been proven that we can trust him for a 16 game season. You know, there's a lot of question marks, and, and not just receiver, but running back. Duke Johnson, Crowell is gone now. Is probably not going to be a factor there as well. But I, I just look at these positions, and I think you got to add depth. you got to add talent. you got to give yourself some options. So I think I think these were, those were some good moves. But, Adam, I'll mm-hmm. ask you about your team, the Bears, because they're another team that were pretty active in this free agency, made some moves. And, and I know last year I'd say – Based on how things were went, you were pleasantly surprised at times with the development and how the team was more competitive than maybe people thought. But some big moves, especially at the receiver position, Allen Robinson, Taylor Gabriel, you know, a collective seventy-eight million or sixty-eight million dollars between them signed. What do you think about what the Bears did, specifically at the wide receiver position, to give Trubisky some weapons? Yeah, it felt like uh, Christmas for Mitchell Trubisky comes in in April or March. I guess you know, definitely. I think that the focus is. I'm assuming, you know, at their headquarters is we have this franchise quarterback. We have to give him as many weapons as we can. And that was a clear problem, Problem, obviously, for the team last year. We lost Alshon Jeffrey. Didn't really do much to resign him. You know, their best prospects were injured. Cam Meredith, Kevin White. I don't know if Cam, uh, Kevin White will see the field again. I mean, I, I root for the best, but he's unfortunately proven that, you know, it, it's tough for him to stay healthy for more than a couple games. So I don't know. if Obviously, I was, I was kind of hoping that they would win the Jarvis, Jarvis Landry sweepstakes. 
because, you know, he, he is such a consistent guy with all the catches he's had, you know, 400 catches in his first four years. Um, but I think you give some nice veteran receivers. For me, Allen Robinson, I, I don't know if he – I think he still has to prove to me that he will be a difference maker and, you know, can go – I know he had the one really good year, uh, 1,600 yards, but to be a true number one for the team. Uh, but they have a lot, at least a lot more depth. I mean, they were throwing the guys that, you know, wouldn't even be on – practice you know wouldn't even be right. close to making a team for other franchises so at least you have some stability there and you know hopefully we'll see what yeah as, as Trubisky learns to play with these guys through the offseason and training camp and preseason um you can kind of develop a repertoire and I still don't know who exactly they're going to target in the draft I think offensive line is a big concern but at least I guess you know you get some some weapons that I don't think they're going to be obviously nowhere near to you know the elite wide receivers in the NFL but at least enough to Make sure that Trubisky knows who he's throwing to, and you know his his receivers are in the right place and where they're supposed to be. Yeah, I'm interested to see if Trey Burton's as good as advertised. He came on late for the Eagles, had some memorable plays, but 32 million, four years—that's a lot. Uh, the cornerback deals too for and Prince Akimura were good as well for them. Uh, Adam Musto, just money, Mitch effect, keeping going on free agency talk. Quarterback dominoes were more than just the names mentioned at the top. I think it's important to note Breeze resigning with the Saints for a two-year deal, but only really fully guaranteed for one. You know, he's going to be 39 years old this year. How much football do you think Breeze has left, given that we looked pretty good and the team actually got a running game last year? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, kind of, you know, statistically his you know lowest numbers, but I think at the end of the day, a uh, pretty successful season. You know, I think now with the rules, obviously quarterbacks, I think, are able to play a lot longer. But, you know, then again, you, you could always be one hit away from, from being all over. I think in their style, you know, it's a lot of quick quick plays. And I think especially now focusing a lot on the running backs that they have with Kamara and Ingram, you know, you don't have to put it all into Breeze's hands. And, and I think that will maybe help extend it for a little bit. Um yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think I could definitely see him playing. I mean, I could see him playing, you know, four years, but I don't know if it's going to be at that high level. Obviously, I think the, the Saints do realize they have the talent to make a Super Bowl run. I don't think, that obviously, they're just, you know, playing out the end of his career. So at some point, maybe they will have to decide if he is going to be the one, that, you know, to if they are planning to win a Super Bowl in the next three, four years, or if they're going to have to go with a younger guy. But I'm sure there's 28 other teams in the NFL that will have Drew Brees. And, and I think with their style and just kind of like the way the NFL is is now, you know, I think quarterbacks should be fine playing into their early 40s. Right. You can tell Brees is kind of giving himself an extra strategy with the shorter deals of high money where he doesn't have to necessarily commit on, on the flip side of that. So I think I think Brees has some good years left in him, but you never know. You're always one hit away. Uh, Adam, the mm-hmm. the Arizona Cardinals were a team I wanted to bring up because their quarterback issues were in the forefront. No quarterback signed as of uh, two weeks ago, and they signed Sam Bradford, the resurrected Sam Bradford, for two years, $40 million, and Mike Glennon, former Bears backup, two years, $8 million. Both, court, both contracts can be voided after one year, only really one year of guaranteed money. But that's an interesting uh, duo, to say the, to say the least. Those two guys, they're going to try to see if they can get a quarterback in the draft, I would assume, but maybe not the main prize or the grand prize, I should say, of free agency. Yeah, and you know, I think the coaching effort of, of Bruce Arians was was very, very solid. Um, obviously, you know, not where they wanted to be the last few years. Injuries have kind of taken their toll um, in age and stuff, so... It would obviously be great to see Larry Fitzgerald be able to, you know, play in another Super Bowl. Um, I don't know if Sam Bradford is the guy. I mean, 
he has the talent, I think, to kind of be a mediocre guy, but obviously we haven't seen him lead a team to the playoffs, and really, obviously, we haven't seen him stay healthy or being able to stay healthy for a whole season. So that, that was one that really scratched my head. You know, I guess there's a few constants apparently in the NFL, and obviously it's one that, you know, everyone's always going to want Sam Bradford for a big contract. So, yeah. um, you know, they have a little bit there, you know, that they, they didn't want to totally re- restart with a brand-new quarterback, but I, I just don't I don't see it working out well, and I think – it could potentially end up kind of how the last few Cardinal seasons are where injuries take its toll and then, you know, and then everything just kind of falls off for them. Yeah. They were just kind of stuck in the middle and they needed something. They, they aren't even in a good enough position to draft one of the elite quarterbacks. So yeah, I think they're going to take their chances on Bradford hope for the best, but if it doesn't work out, maybe they'll get a top pick in the draft next year. I think it's going to be unfortunately some dark days ahead for the Arizona Cardinals, but another team that, has really made some interesting moves. I won't say questionable yet because I want to see how it pans out. But the New York Jets, who they did sign the aforementioned Isaiah Crowell, Browns backup, Browns running back, is on their team. Tremaine Johnson, quarterback from the Rams, got a mega deal, five years, $72 million. But the Jets add Teddy Bridgewater at a one-year, $5 million deal and re-sign McCown for one year and $10 million. But they also traded up to the third position in the draft with the Colts switching their first-round picks and giving them three second-rounders. The trade itself, I, I think that might have been a lot to give up personally, given that you're picking third in a draft that might go quarterback one, two, three. But they got some interesting choices to make for their quarterback next year and also of the future. What do you think the Jets do here, Adam? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Sam, or, uh, Sam Bradford, Teddy Bridgewater is, is a great story, but I think we still kind of have to see if that knee can hold up for a whole season and, and what... I, to me, when I saw that, it reminds me a lot of exactly what the Bears did last year, where you kind of sign the backup, uh, you know, or Mike Glennon, kind of the, the veteran, and then trading up, you know, only a couple spots. I mean, they gave up a lot, and I think the Colts are now in really good shape with all those picks, um, just to move back from from three to six. So, I mean, I I think obviously their ultimate goal is to get a guy you know, big quarterback. And I don't know if it's just going to be, you know, someone who is going to be in the headlines. I mean, Baker Mayfield to New York. Um, I feel like the Jets kind of thrive on that strictest atmosphere. I don't know if it'll help them win games though. So I think that's ultimately their goal, but Bridgewater to me still, if you watch him play, I mean, he still is a guy that throws a lot of short underneath passes. And, you know, I don't know if that's going to be a, a, a factor that leads to a lot of wins in the future. Yeah, the trade was the the head scratching part. I get signing Bridgewater, taking a flyer on uh, on somebody that has a lot to prove, but still showed signs if he can get back healthy, maybe he gets back to playing how he did before the gruesome injury. McCown and even re-signing him. I mean, he had a pretty solid year last year. You get him for ten million. He's a professional. He can he can help groom whoever the next quarterback is, whether it's Bridgewater or somebody else. The Colts, uh, the Colts are in great shape because they just need to add talent, and they added a lot of good draft picks for only going down three spots. But you wonder what's going to happen now if the quarterbacks go one and two. If it is Darnold, Rose, and Allen, whoever, and you're stuck with, you know, somebody that you might not have liked as best, how can you sell that to your fans if if we're getting basically the third or fourth best quarterback in the draft? Maybe they still do dra- draft Saquon Barkley. I don't know. There's a lot of uh, variables there, but I think the Jets. It's always intriguing to see what their plan is. I think we don't even know right now. Right. I think what the what the trade told me is, you know, the people in that that organization they know who their guy is and they want to draft or trade up to make sure that they get that guy. So yeah, at that point, it's really just kind of putting your trust in them. And you know, as a Jets fan, I don't know if you do or you don't, but whoever they pick 
and we've seen it before where, you know, teams draft or, you know, trade up thinking of Ricky Williams, Julio Jones, and you kind of put your stamp on it. Even, you know, Trubisky with the Bears, you put your stamp on it. You say, this is our guy that's going to be our franchise guy. And you trust the organization that they know exactly what they're doing. Their, their scouts know what they're doing. And, you know, hopefully for them that, you know, you hope that that obviously is a guy that can produce for you for 10 to 15 years. Adam, I want to talk about one team in particular to, to center the, the next part of this discussion, but also a few other teams that are related. The New England Patriots every year, it seems, run into this issue of how can they remain relevant while also remaining cost-effective for a team as dominant and as just so dominantly good as they've been. It's kind of remarkable that every year they keep having to shed off salaries and just moving on to younger other players. Uh, but this year in particular, they lost a lot of... Uh, a lot of key members of their recent Super Bowl runs. And I look at Tennessee, they basically are becoming the new-look Patriots. They add Deion Lewis and Malcolm Butler, Amendola's on the Dolphins. They have made some moves themselves, but how would you grade what the Patriots have been doing this offseason? Yeah, I mean, somehow they're just able to find guy. I do think Amendola will... I mean, I don't know if he would be a big... You know, I think Edelman and, and Brady have a great uh, rapport together. But you're definitely not going to lose people there. And, you know, I think with, with Deion Lewis... They have proven though that they don't need you know a great running back, and in some sense to me, it's it's kind of ironic going back in, in NFL history when you think you know Bill Belichick uh, going back to that Bills Giants Super Bowl where he kind of was the mastermind of stopping Thurman Thomas and the Giants had OJ Anderson, and that was like the form. Obviously, the game has changed, but I, I mean I, I am shocked that they're able to be so productive offensively without you know ever having a, a solid running back, and I guess that's just the way the passing. Passing league is now because um, you go back historically, you know Dan Marino, John Elway. They always kind of struggled when they had their long droughts of not winning a Super Bowl because they never had a running back. So they always, find, you know, and I don't honestly think if you go back, their drafts really haven't been top notch. I, I think that they just they kind of piece people together. People, you know, buy into the Patriot way. I think obviously sometimes they try to find guys that have had problems with other teams and they just kind of work in New England. I mean, it, it'll still be tough, but I think I don't know if. There haven't been a whole lot of other AFC teams that have made any moves, at least this year. You know, I think a lot of teams are setting themselves up that that the Patriots won't stand up to and be able to you know, challenge pretty effectively. Right. Maybe Jeremy Hill does fit in better uh, for what they want to do with Burkhead back and still with James White. They that, The running back position, I thought, was a good problem to have. They weren't going to give Deion Lewis top 10 running back money. Uh, Butler mm-hmm. was obviously already gone. Amendola did hurt last year, but with Edelman coming back, presumably, hopefully healthy, uh, then maybe that loss won't be as bad. But yeah, I thought Solder going away to the Giants, that's a lot of turnover as well. It just seemed like this was a year that there was more turnover uh, than in the past. But it's the Patriots. We expect mm-hmm. them to presumably be good as long as Brady's there. And with Gronk coming back, I think you know we'll have to see. But you know, I, I was with you. I think there was a lot of uh, questionable moves as well. One of them, not involving the Patriots, the Green Bay Packers, Adam Point Blake, do you think they got better getting rid of Jordy Nelson and adding Jimmy Graham? Yeah, it's a tough one. I think I am honestly kind of intrigued to see how Jordy Nelson does without Aaron Rodgers, just because, you know, I do think that sometimes you have these great quarterbacks and it makes things a lot easier. I know at NFL Network, when Curtis Conway was on our show, he'd always joke that he had to play with all these crummy quarterbacks in Chicago and San Diego, and, and where you have guys like like Wes Walker is an example where his whole career is either with Brady, Brady or Peyton Manning. So, but I, I think, you know, he would fit in well with, with uh, Derek Carr and, and Amari Cooper. But, uh, you know, obviously I think what the Packers want is kind of the old school Jimmy Graham. And I feel like he's kind of been 
silence a little bit in Seattle, uh, even though obviously last year they had no running game to speak of, so you kind of saw him you know, improve a little bit. At the end of the day, you know, you have you have systems and coaches, but I think you have to put players in situations where they're the best to succeed. And I think this works better for his style and his skill set. As a Bears fan, I am, you know, I don't know if I'm going to say I'm excited to see him do well, but I, I think it, it works out better for him. But Nelson and Rodgers had such a good rapport together. I, I'm curious how Aaron Rodgers feels about that. If he's slighted about you know any any contract situations, and I, I think it will be a big loss though. Well, I think there's two separate issues to consider. Number one being the Green Bay Packers gave that new deal to Devontae Adams. They already had Cobb kind of on the books for money. Both those guys are younger and less injury-prone than Jordy Nelson. So I understand moving on from a veteran receiver that's had its, had their fair share of injuries. It happens all the time in football. When you add another offensive weapon for similar money, you're going to get flack for that. I think Jimmy Graham, while he didn't look that great in Seattle, where did he look great? He looked great in a tr- with a traditional pocket passer, Drew Brees, and an offense that was geared towards airing the football. That's not who Seattle was. Now, he could have lost mm-hmm. a step. He might never be that effective again. I think there's a lot of variables to consider. But if you're Green Bay, it's worth a, ch- it's worth a flyer on a guy that at its p- peak has been one of the best tight ends in football. So uh, I, don't, I don't blame them for this move, especially when you factor in the money. It's hard to justify paying three receivers like they would have been all that money. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, uh, you know, I think the, the system fits Graham well. And yeah, they do have a lot of talent. And, and even I think with Rodgers, you don't need a whole lot of talent. Um, you know, you just kind of have a system in place. Everything's very, you know, all formulas and, and very mechanical. And it just kind of works. And Jordy Nelson's release, you know, kicked off another round of musical chairs, the wide receiver edition that saw him go to Oakland. They cut, they cut Michael Crabtree, who ends up in Baltimore. Uh, so I, I think those were interesting moves too. I think you got guys that, you know, the Raiders need to figure out who Carr's premier weapons. They weren't ready to give up on Cooper after one bad year, uh, and then Crabtree mm-hmm. should help out Flacco, giving him a reliable target that's not just a deep ball. He's still going to play great quarterback, which he may or may not be able to. Yeah, it's uh, with the systems in place. You just kind of it's just kind of about building a rapport with. Uh, you know, quarterbacks and wide receivers together. I do think it takes some time, but it is kind of funny. It just kind of, you know, moves around and you kind of fill new people in. I think we kind of saw that with like Mike Wallace last year. Uh, you kind of forget where people came from or where they are now, but you just hope that, you know, it works for your specific system. Money Mitch effect, Adam Musto, NFL free agency talk. Last one for you. Do you think Richard Sherman still has anything left in the tank for, for the 49ers? I do. I mean, you know, I think an Achilles injury is pretty hard to overcome. But, I mean, I was kind of surprised you just kind of let someone like that go. The craziest part is going back to San Francisco, you know, arguably your most iconic play in your NFL career against a team. Um, Obviously, that rivalry is not what it was a few years ago. But I think so. And if nothing else, I think he's a great leader and he is very motivated. So I I think that, you know, he's not just in it for the money, even though, you know, he had said probably that he wasn't just going to take you know, a hometown deal to stay with Seattle. But yeah, he's going to, you know, he's going to, I think, be a leader in that secondary. And I think just for himself, I think he still feels like he has a lot to prove. Yeah, I just, I don't know what health he has left, how he's going to look. I think the contract that the Niners signed him to was very uh, fair on their part because they don't have to really pay him if he doesn't pan out, if he's not healthy. But with with a guy that wasn't built on top-end speed, it could go one of two ways. He could look unbelievably slow and be out of the league pretty soon, or losing some some minimal speed 
isn't going to affect his game and the way he plays. So I think the Niners, it's the grapple effect. Everybody wants to go there now because they have a legit quarterback. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, you know, that, that definitely makes a big deal. I think, uh, you know, even looking at, I, I think Jacksonville a few years ago, they were kind of in a destination where not that many people wanted to play. And, uh, and you know, now I think just a little bit of winning and, and you kind of build a culture, that helps a lot. Um, and I was just going to say real quick with Sherman, too, I mean, maybe, you know, we saw, I think we saw Revis. I think that kind of shocked me. I mean, you have a guy who's kind of, people think, oh, he's definitely going to be a Hall of Famer, and he just kind of falls off. And, you know, I feel like we don't usually see that that quick from in the secondary, but we all have, all have also seen, you know, guys kind of switch more to, like, a safety role going from corner to safety. So maybe that maybe would be able to help kind of, you know, build more longevity into his career. Yeah, might very well do that. All right, Adam Musto, uh, anything else that we didn't touch on from free agency? Any other deals? I forgot McCarron um, with the Bills. He was the last quarterback to drop, which is firmly fitting. Yeah, I. Uh, that would be an interesting one. I mean, I, I, you know, I think the Bills are always a nice underdog to root for, and, and I, I do kind of feel for McCarron just kind of being strung out so long and probably deserving more of a shot to compete for a starting role, and I think that might be a good fit for them in Buffalo, not a whole lot of pressure, you know, not a huge media market. Peterman's there. Joe Webb is there. It looks like, you know, McCarron should get that role that, you know, they still may, may try to draft another guy. Yeah. Um, but at least that'll kind of give him some reps and, and kind of some more experience. And we can finally see, you know, what, what, what he is. I just got to give a shout out to uh, the one and only Joe Thomas on retiring. It was a sad day. I know we talked about it, but uh, I get it. I get a player wanting to go out on his own terms. 11 seasons, 10 straight pro balls to start his career, and uh, all those snaps played. Unbelievable. Going to be sad not watching him play. And I, the only athlete, I think, in the last decade that I legitimately feel bad for. Oh, yeah. it's You know, it, it would be great to uh, – maybe the NFL should have a team in London and just stockpile them with uh, Larry Fitzgeralds and the, the uh, Joe Thomases of the world and the Calvin Johnsons and let, let them win a Super Bowl. So, yeah, just a true pro in really every aspect. And kind of earlier when we were talking about um, building culture in a locker room or trying to get vets in that kind of know a system and can kind of build a winning culture, I think he really – I mean, obviously – he just kind of exuded that veteran maturity. And I think those are guys that if you're a young player in the league, you want to look up to and kind of learn from and just kind of pick their brain. I mean, just a true pro. And I always thought, you know, the Ironman that he was, he would end up doing the Bruce Matthews route playing, you know, 18 years. But, um, you know, you obviously have to look out for yourself and, and uh, just a solid career. And I'm pretty sure we'll probably see him in Canton pretty soon. Yeah, that's a pretty safe bet. Well said. Well, Adam Musto, this was fun. Thanks again for hopping on the show. And uh, good luck with everything. Until next time, it was fun chatting on the Money Mission Pack. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. That's it for today's show. Thanks to both guests, Brandon Marcus and Adam Musto, for appearing on the Money Mitch Effect. Thanks to Brian Nelson for supplying the logo and Tim Adams for supplying the music that you hear on this and every podcast. And thanks to everybody out there for subscribing to the show, which is found on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play. And recently, a new Money Mitch Effect Facebook page, which can be found by just searching Money Mitch Effect on Facebook. A new page that started two weeks ago is up and running. Thanks to everybody for liking it originally. We hope to continue to grow and put new content on there. And maybe some micro episodes in the future, some quick tidbits, maybe some behind the scenes. It's all on there. Just search Money Mitch Effect. We're going to get the ball rolling on our newest social media page. That's on Facebook. I'm also on Twitter, MoneyMitchM21. You 
you can find the podcast in many, many different outlets. Thank you for listening to today's show, 137 episodes in the can. There will hopefully be another one this week where we talk about more sports. Got to get to the NHL at some point. And uh, March Madness continues again on Thursday. So thanks again, everybody listening. I'm Mitch Michaels. This was the Money Mitch Effect. We'll see you next time.